0: Deadbeat Scroll by Mark Coggins is slick, sardonic, and suspenseful. Everything a great thriller should be, says New York Times bestselling author Lee Child. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 7. Historic Preservation The next morning I resolved to set aside the things I'd learned, or hadn't learned, at Golden Fingers, and focus instead on tracing Chris's steps in the search for Angelina's sister. The obvious starting point was the architecture firm that had once employed her, Hillisland, Hillisland, and Chellick. Meat-eating dinosaur PIs are not known for their internet skills— but I eventually managed to find the website for the San Francisco chapter of the American Institute of Architects. The only entry in the membership directory that came close to the one I wanted consisted of a single Hillisland with an "an" Associates stuck to the end. According to the website, the firm had been established in 1978, employed an architect named Nielsen Hillisland, and focused on projects involving historical preservation. As if to underscore the historical theme, Nielsen listed an AOL email address, which even this dinosaur knew harkened back to the Precambrian era of screeching dial-up connections. The firm's office was south of Market on Folsom Street, near the corner of 7th. It was in a narrow, two-story brick building with full-height glass windows. Old-fashioned Venetian blinds covered the windows, and even from the outside, I could see they were caked with dust dust also covered the graveyard of dead flies along the sill the door opened on a long room with a distressed hardwood floor sprouting massive i-beams at periodic intervals to shore up the equally distressed brick walls long tables with rolls of blueprints and other flotsam and jetsam were wedged along the side walls and a pair of drafting tables set at right angles to those plunked in the center The only light in the place came from the windows and a couple of gooseneck lamps bent over the drafting surfaces. A man on a wheeled stool sat behind one of the tables, reading the New York Times. He put his index finger down in the middle of an article as I approached, looked up, and said, Tattoo Parlor is across the street. That was good, because he didn't look like the sort of guy I'd trust with my rainbow unicorn tat. He was pushing 70 or 75, had a rooster comb of white hair, recessed black eyes, crinkly, sallow skin, and a hooked nose. He was wearing a quilted velour vest over a yellow dress shirt and probably could have dropped 50 pounds without coming within yodeling distance of his ideal height-to-weight ratio. I'm not looking for a tattoo, I said. He pulled his reading glasses from his nose and let them dangle from a cord around his neck. How about a 100-floor office building? No, sorry, I'm after information. That is, if this firm used to be called Hillisland, Hillisland, and Chellick. It did. Chellick died, and the other Hillisland, my son, decided that flogging real estate paid better. He was right. Okay, let me ask you this. Did a short man with blonde hair come by a while ago, also looking for information? Yes. He lifted the corner of the newspaper, fished around underneath it, and pulled out a card. He squinted at it from arm's length. A Chris Duckworth. He also asked about the firm's name, and he also had a black eye. Is this some kind of weird scavenger hunt? I wish it were. I'm a private detective from his office, and he's been murdered. I'm trying to find out if it was related to a case he was working on. Did he ask about Corinne White, formerly Corinne Evangelista? He nodded. Except there was no Evangelista involved. She was plain old Corinne White when she worked here. He put the card back down on the table. I'm sorry to hear about your associate. He seemed like a nice fellow. He was. What else can you tell me? Duckworth said he found Corinne's name in an old San Francisco article about a project the firm did for pets.com. That checks out, because we hired her in the late 1990s, when there was a lot of work refurbishing old South of Market buildings for the dot-coms. You were still Hillisland, Hillisland, and Chellick at that point. Yeah. Those were the gold rush days. He gave a dry chuckle. How long did she stay? Six or seven years. She went on maternity leave and never came back. I'm sure she could see the writing on the wall. My son had left by that point, too. But I have to tell you, I can't imagine Corinne being involved in a murder or any sort of crime. She was good people. I'm not saying she was personally involved, only that looking for her might have gotten Duckworth mixed up in something that went south. Do you have any contact information for her? Duckworth asked for that, too. I told him we shredded the personnel files years ago. I couldn't stop myself from breaking eye contact to glance around the cluttered office. If Wikipedia needed a photograph to illustrate their article on hoarders, I knew where they could get it. Hillisland laughed. I know what you're thinking. Why get religion about the personnel files in particular? My lawyer advised me to get rid of them as soon as the retention laws allowed, to avoid having them subpoenaed for lawsuits. Involved in a lot of litigation, are you? No, never sued once. But lawyers are better than architects at finding ways to manufacture billable hours. All is not lost, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. After Duckworth left, I got to thinking. When times were good, the firm sent out Christmas cards to clients, partners, and employees. I dug around in the back and found our old address file. He waved vaguely behind him, then wheeled over to the other drafting table where he picked up an index card. He pulled on his glasses and read from the card. "Corinne White, 29 Russell Street, San Francisco. It's on Russian Hill. Is there a phone number? Yes, but who knows if it's current. It's a place to start. I pulled out my smartphone and fumbled open the camera app. Mind if I photograph it? He shrugged. You kids and your crazy toys. I managed to capture a decent shot after three shaky attempts, but I knew Chris would have been proud of me for using the camera rather than my notebook. Did you pass this information on to Duckworth? No. I only thought of it yesterday. I was actually planning to call after I finished reading the paper. A busy professional has to plan his schedule, you know. Of course. I put my hand out and gave him my name. Thank you for everything. land took it with a surprisingly strong grip. My pleasure, Mr. Reardon. I hope you find out what happened to your associate. And if you do run across Corinne, tell her Nellie says hello. I smiled. Nellie. Got it. Russell turned out to be a one-block street off Hyde on the south side of Russian Hill. The corner at Hyde was about 10 yards from the place I'd seen a 20-something girl from Argentina get cut down by a machine-gun-wielding gripman. That had been the start of the case that led to my estrangement from Chris and my decision to leave San Francisco. To say the area had bad associations for me was putting it mildly. The cabby I flagged to take me here from Hillisland's office stopped by a fireplug on Hyde just as a cable car rumbled down the hill behind us. I pushed too much money at the driver, tumbled out of the cab, and hurried down Russell to avoid seeing the car pass the spot where the girl had been killed. Odd number houses were on the left side of the street, but when I passed the sawed off Victorian at number 21, the only thing between it and the two-unit apartment house at 3739 was the skeleton of a small A-frame. The siding had been stripped to expose weather-stained plywood, and the roof had been replaced by a blue plastic tarp whose edges billowed and snapped in the breeze. I stepped around a porta potty on the sidewalk and climbed up a short brick stair to the front door, or, to be more accurate, the front door frame. A construction permit was tacked to the side. It had been issued over a month ago to Corinne White and covered comprehensive renovation and the addition of an upstairs bathroom. I stuck my head through the door frame. The interior had been taken down to the studs. There were no workers or any tools or stacked construction materials lying around. I guessed that the demolition crew had finished and the remodeling had yet to begin. That should have been that. I had confirmed Corinne still owned the property and was presumably living nearby during construction. Heck, she was probably the architect. I had any number of options to locate her. I could speak to the neighbors, I could go to the Department of Building Inspection and pull the permit, or I could even call the number from Hillisland's Christmas card file. The only problem was the smell, the putrid, licorice-sweet stench that rolled out from the house and fell on me like a pile of compost. I gagged and stepped back, eyeing the porta potty in the off chance I was mistaken about the source of the odor. I wasn't. The only thing coming from it was the tang of an industrial-strength disinfectant, a veritable spring breeze by comparison. I pulled a folded handkerchief from my hip pocket and pressed it over my nose and mouth. Then I stepped through the door. If I'd ever done a braver thing, I couldn't remember. The interior was dim, with shards of light stabbing down from the unglazed windows. Chunks of drywall, wood chips and pink cotton candy insulation littered the plywood subfloor. Bent nails and bits of yellowing paper festooned the denuded studs, which had rusting pipes and crumbling wires running between them. I shuffled through the entryway, a bedroom, and a room in back I took for the kitchen, covering my new shoes with a thick gray dust. I was marking time until I worked up the courage to go upstairs to the second floor, even breathing through the handkerchief I knew the smell was coming from there. More gray dust had accumulated against the risers of the staircase like snowdrifts, and that combined with the absence of railings made it hard to climb without slipping. But keeping my feet under me was the least of my worries. With every step I took, the smell increased correspondingly, and it was so bad by the time I reached the landing that I was holding my breath. At least there was no longer any mystery about the source. Much of the second-floor subfloor had been removed, so the only place where the joists were covered was the landing and a square of conspicuously new plywood subflooring beyond it. And lying face down on that plywood was the flaccid, almost puddled body of a woman. Her head was twisted to the right, and her arms were bent akimbo at her sides. She was wearing a short-sleeved cotton dress that was blotched with seeping fluids. Her long black hair was matted and snarled. Half-dollar-sized circles of decomposition spotted her arms and legs, red, going to black, going to ash further from her trunk. The skin of each hand was like a melted latex glove, shriveled and deformed, as if the bones underneath had dissolved. And her face, her face, the features of it sloughed to the floor like houses in a mudslide. I retched and retreated halfway down the stairs. Between coughing fits and strangled hiccups of breath through the handkerchief, it was several minutes before I summoned the courage to climb back up. But I only stayed long enough to retrieve the red leather shoulder bag I'd seen by her side. I hurried down the stairs with it, ran out of the house, and walked twenty yards or so up the street where I plunked myself on the curb. The smell of dusty concrete and the warm rubber from the rear wheel of the Fiat I was sitting next to was perfume compared to the miasma I'd been breathing. I put away the handkerchief and examined the purse. The strap was gold chain, and ugly gold doodads encrusted the front. In spite of that, or perhaps because of it, it looked expensive. I glanced furtively to my left and right to see if I was being observed, then opened the bag. Nestled among a key ring, various tubes, a brush, a compact, and ironically, it seemed to me, a bottle of hand sanitizer, was a matching red leather billfold. I unsnapped the catch and rifled through the card slots to extract a California driver's license issued to an attractive woman with long, straight hair. She was named Corinne E. White, born a little more than 44 years ago, and residing at 29 Russell Street, San Francisco. I shoved everything back into the purse, hid it under my arm as best I could, and levered myself up. I jogged back to the intersection with Hyde, turned right, and commenced a forced march down the hill toward my old neighborhood. A few blocks from the Post Street apartment, I diverted to a nondescript building that served as headquarters for a local union. There, in the reception area with a chipped green linoleum floor, was one of the 200-odd payphones that remained in San Francisco. I knew that because I had occasion to use it several times after missing payments on my phone bill. I picked up the receiver and dialed 911. When the operator asked me what my emergency was, I responded, dead body, and gave the Russian Hill address. I hung up before she could ask for my name or any other details and hurried out the door. Fifteen minutes later, I was standing under the shower in the Post Street apartment, sanding my skin with one of Chris's loofah sponges. You have been listening to The Deadbeat Scroll, a book the New York Journal of Books described as a glorious potpourri of violence, black humor, sex, and a hunt for a lost manuscript. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.